So Kevin Scott, um, Skoka Landscapers, I really appreciate you having uh, coming on the show here. And um, it sounds like your story from from the very start, you've worked your way up north. Uh, mm -hmm. You're born in the city and slowly working. You, you ended up in Skoka here. Um, and from what I understand, a large portion of that was spent um, doing like golf course enhancements, mm -hmm. uh, the golf course construction um, and in that field. And you're wanting to, to grow more, um, more money. And that's how, how you ended up here And Muskoka Landscapers now. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but known as the number one landscapers in, in Muskoka. Um, so there's, it's, there's many. There's yeah, many. well, your, your work speaks for itself and it's, it's impressive what you guys do. And I'm excited to dive into uh, the nitty gritty of how, how you run this, this monster. Yeah, and, I appreciate uh, it. I'm happy to be on. So walk me through um, from, from the earlier days before Muskoka Landscapers. What was that like and what flipped the switch? Um, to take that, that step because it's pretty scary to people going into a, a foreign space. You, you don't have the contacts, etc. Right. Yeah, well, I was in the golf industry. I worked for a company called Gateman Malloy who was out of Kitchener. Still, they're still out of Kitchener. Um, and it was right when the golf boom had started, so kind of 97 to 07, 08. Um, so we had a good 10-year run there where the, that company went from like 80 employees when I started to over 400 by the time I left. Um, and it was great. I had a very well-paying job and truck and pension and, and all the good things that you would get with a good company. Um, but we started doing projects up here. I had grown up up in Muskoka. Uh, I had two young girls at the time that were, you know, probably four and one. Uh, and just, we, we loved Richmond Hill, but knew we wanted to get back up here. My wife's parents had moved up to Muskoka. My family was already up here. Um, so, you know, other people that I met while I was working up here and friends of mine that were contractors were always saying, you know, there, there's opportunity. And um, I think when I did it, it wasn't really to become a business owner. It was more, I, I thought I could make more money and be at home. And, you know, because in the golf industry, I was out of town Monday to Friday most weeks. Right. Whether we were working in Niagara or Oshawa or Muskoka, we were based in Richmond Hill, but... Yeah, I was often working out of town remotely. So, so what did that first season look like? And what were a few key lessons from when you were that smaller company for a lot of these guys starting out? Well, I, I was fortunate when I started out because we were building a golf course up here that had a private lake behind it. And through the construction process of the golf course, I got to meet quite a few of the principals that owned the lots at the lake. They were all building at the time. Um, and actually, Gateman Malloy had a large project up here at a camp uh, and ended up subbing us in. So the first year, we had three or four employees, and we kind of went through the run through the season like that. We sub substituted with some sub-trades when we needed. Um, but we were lucky. Like, we, we, we did almost a million bucks our first, our first wow. season. Um, and, and that was basically through, like, four or five projects. Uh, and a lot of it was from that golf course. It was just people I knew and... Uh, made for a great start and then as you know when you have a, a membership like that there's two or three hundred other members word spreads you know that you're doing a good job and um, that you're keen and, and hungry and you know kind of every year after that was just a, a little bit of growth and then I'd say you know after like the seven eight year mark that's when things really started to change and, and ramp up. And, and that was 2007, correct? When you yeah. guys first started? 2007, I started, uh, we used to do a lot of hydro seeding. So I started the hydro seeding the first year. I was still at Gateman Malloy at the time. Uh, I had somebody running it for me here. And um, 
it, it did well. It did well its first year, and then it was actually 08, uh, which was also a tricky time to start because it was start of a right. recession. Um, but fortunately, uh, fortunately, things went well. And as far as what I learned was, I learned I wasn't a business person. You know, I knew nothing about accounting and taxes and bookkeeping and systems. And I had always managed a lot of people for the company when I was in the golf industry. So I was able to use some of that as far as planning projects and strategizing about materials and efficiencies. So like doing the work was no problem. Managing the business was a big learning curve. So really jumping into the deep end, your, your budget is obviously super limited being a new, new organization. What were you able to surround yourself? Was it hiring the right people or uh, the, the right training programs? What did you find worked? Um, well, I think I, I was fortunate because I had a few of the people that were working with me join me as well. They also lived locally. Um, so, you know, we started off with a really strong team and those uh, three or four people that were with me the first year are still... Uh, one of them's our GM. One guy's our operations manager. Um, so they've been around for the for the past 17, 16, 17 years. So yeah, I think surrounding yourself, like hiring, right? It's 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 harder to do now than it was then. You know, you had big bigger pool to draw from in you know the late or early to late two thousands. In terms of labor. Yeah, it was just there was more people available at the time, and, and likely not as much work. Right. Um, yeah. So it was a little bit. I don't want to say easier. You still always want to try and make sure you're hiring the right people. But um, I definitely had a good start um, with the people I had. Good core. And the stage you guys are at, setting the bar so, so high of the quality standard here in Muskoka is, is very impressive. And you don't get to this stage by doing everything. You see guys, you know, they're mowing lawns, patios, Christmas lights, right? So really finding your niche, I'm sure that was, that was quite important from the start. Um, how did you balance that from the start? It's limited work, your first, second, third year, mm -hmm. um, but also your guys need to be so, so good at what they're doing to to get to this this high level that you're right. at. Um, what worked for you really, really dialing that in? Uh, honestly, it was just working hard. You know, it wasn't, I honestly don't think I had a plan my first three or four years, maybe even the first five years before it really, you know, after like the four or five year mark where we really started making some good money and, but, but our revenues were, were so up and down and our margins were so up and down. Um, once I started focusing on those things and, and started looking at more of the historical information on what was producing good net, what wasn't, who wasn't, uh, what types of projects were they? Then when we started to focus on that, that was kind of when things started to go. But I think when, in my situation anyway, when I started, I was so fearful of not making money that we would take on just about anything and likely did some projects that weren't really our wheelhouse, um, but they fit a schedule. It was a, a referral. Um, it was likely work that we knew how to do, but we were just, we didn't specialize in. And what point did you learn to say no or start saying no? Um, I think once we started to book out much further, you know, it's obviously, it's obviously much easier if you've got a year ahead of you and you've got money in the bank, it's easy to make the right decisions. When you're, when you're worried about next month's payment or payroll or um, what the guys are going to be doing, then you tend to make decisions that are, you know, not, not as, as lucrative and likely not as fitting as to what you should be looking for. 
Right on. And in terms of systems, um, you know, I know you're a guru of this and being on LMN is, is amazing, seeing all your numbers and, and, and rates and percentages, etc. Um, but in terms of systemizing such a complex process, like what you guys do is, is so in-depth. There's so many moving parts to a job, I can only imagine. And systemizing a lawn mowing company is one thing, but systemizing this 40, 50 people uh, is a whole other thing, multiple, multiple crews. Right. Um, what was a key factor that worked for you uh, to find success having all your crews being profitable and successful in their jobs? SOPs. I'm all about the SOPs now, right? Like everybody's got a procedure that we follow and it, it kind of starts with an overall company workflow from initial call to one year warranty inspection. Um, but then it's all driven down into the GM's SOP, operations SOP. How do they make the right decisions for deliveries and, and financially what are the best decisions? Um, project managers, does the design team has an SOP, site supers, the yard, um, purchasing, like everything has a system that we follow and it, it's, um, it's a great way to see, you know, if there is a problem, not that you're using it as a, a, a punishing tool, but makes people accountable. You right. know, if something goes wrong, because sometimes things go wrong and you don't actually realize until a month later yeah. or a, in a billing cycle or something, something gets missed and it's like, what, why did that happen? Um, and it's easy to go back and track when you have a standard operating procedure. Um, and I think it, it is so worth the time to invest um, in frequently updating them and making new ones as new positions uh, become uh, prominent. You know, because I think a lot of times when, when you have an SOP, it doesn't necessarily change a lot, but you're gonna be filtering in different people to look after, you know, who they're responsible to and when and what information do they require. and. Um, so I think SOPs are probably the biggest tool that we use to, to keep everybody kind of on the same page. So, so an SOP, and I, I find with, uh, with my small organization, we, we only have four, four crews. We have right. 15 guys compared to what you do. Um, but you can have as many checklists as you want, but there's a point where you're over-systematizing and no one reads it at all. Right. What format or what do you find is best for holding these guys accountable and making sure they actually follow it? Yeah, it, it can be tough. I, I remember when we first started LMN, um, it was difficult to have the crews filling it out at the right time. Uh, or some guys were taking like two or three days and then filling it all in. And so anyway, we, we nipped that in the bud as, as quickly as, can, as we could. The SOPs, I think, they're not something we use every day or even every week. They're more of a guideline so that pe so pe people have a, a binder with them, whether it's in their truck or in their bin. Um, and it has a full list of things that they can look at, refer to, make sure they're doing. Um, and I think some of the guys use it well, some of them don't use it as much as the others. Once they've been through it, and like every winter we're revising them. So I think that too helps everybody, like they already know or memorize what it was. A couple little tweaks every winter to make it better. And they're the ones making Yeah, decisions. and it's like a group thing, right? We all yeah. we all chip in and try and figure out where we're doing it. Actually, you were at the same seminar when we, uh, Mark was talking a lot about waste. Um, like that's something we've worked on a lot this winter. And that was a group thing as well. And we thought of, you know, 40 things where we have waste and how can we fix that? And what are the solutions? And, you know, there's some low hanging fruit in the, in the waste area that uh, 
is easy to clean up with an SLP right. or add to somebody else's SLP. Right. Um, so I wouldn't say we're like, it's not something we're using daily, but it's what people can refer to if they're not sure what to do. Interesting. Right? Interesting. So talking about processes, um, what does the process look like from the initial client reaching out to you guys? I know you've sent them a welcome package, they fill out um, what, whatever it is. Walk me through that to uh, you presenting the final product. So yeah, so we have, uh, we get an initial call or email. Um, I loop in one of the designers, they'll send the welcome package with like a programming list. Often there's people or often customers haven't thought about a lot of things that are on the programming list. So I think it's a good thing to get in front of them. I think it's also something when they get it, they go, oh, you know, anytime you can trigger somebody to think about something they haven't, they just, you know, you develop a little more trust, a little more confidence um, right off the get go. And, you know, there's obviously some great images in there. Um, and you know, you're just trying to get them excited about their, their upcoming project. And, and what does that look like? Is it a, is it an electronic booklet or it, a checklist it or it's electronic? We'll often, if we're going to initial, an initial meeting, like we've already sent them that we're now having a site visit, we'll bring a printed copy as well. So we have something to refer to. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they bring them printed as well or on an iPad. Um, but yeah, it's basically just a list of what our process is, bunch of photos of completed work. Um, there's some township rules in there that are highlighted. Um, and then pro just lists of programming, like, you know, volleyball, outdoor kitchen, what's in the outdoor kitchen, uh, you know, pools, spas, saunas, cold plunge. Right. There's a, a probably a 25 or 30 page or not page, but 30 items of things for them to pick from uh, planting pallets. Planting pallets we usually get into a little bit later, but from that process we or that initial email we set up a, a time to meet. Uh, depending on the time of year, it might be on site. Generally, it's nice to meet on site. Um, from there, we get a better sense of what they're after. We talk about our design agreement and the fees. Um, we leave that meeting. We send them the design contract. We get the contract signed. We get the fees paid, and then from there we'll try and schedule our next meeting to visit some sites. Because one of the things that we've learned works really well for us in design is often you can design a project with more programming than the customer originally requested just to show them what's possible. But if you can take them to a few sites that have a lot of the things they're after, you can make all the little decisions about stone color, size of joints, what's in the joints. Do you like a five foot wide path? Do you prefer seven foot? Right. You know, you know, outdoor couches, outdoor kitchens, uh, pools, saunas. And, you know, we're fortunate we have a lot of projects that have all of that on one site. Um, some people like a more traditional landscape, so they're looking for more like five point rather than dimensional. But sometimes they don't, they're not really sure yet. So to start a design without going through that sometimes is a waste of time. Unless Just they're very the, specific about what they want. Like the back and forth, whether it's with the designer or, yeah. or all up in the air. Yeah, it's much better to go and have a, you know, visit two or three sites, take a couple hours and, and have all those conversations about the things we just talked about. And then from there, it's pretty easy to, to start building a design and doing some renders for them. And um, so we go through that process. And then once, once everybody's happy with the design, then we'll do a high level budget. It's usually, you know, rounded numbers with some budgetary items for like planting and lighting and irrigation. 
Um, you know, a lot of the hardscape is probably fixed because it's measurable. Right. Um, one of the difficulties we run into in cottage country is like, where do you stop? You know, so often um, your beds and everything get bigger than you originally planned on the plan because trees were cleared more or, you know, the contractor doing the foundation maybe opened up another area for access or something. Um, so again, we like to have budgetary items for those. Um, and then from there, you know, there's usually a couple reiterations to the budget. Sometimes there isn't, sometimes they're happy with everything and you get rolling. Um, and I think too, by the time there's a budget presentation, customers already have a pretty good sense of what things cost. And that, that's also a great thing about taking them to other sites. You know, this pool was 320,000 if they're, if they're doing a pool, right. You know, yeah. it just gives them a better sense of, okay, our pool is going to be a little bit smaller. We're not going to have the hot tub, you know, probably be in the 250, 260 range. So they, so they're not shocked. I don't think when they get the original, like, you know, customer education is a big part of the meetings, especially at the beginning. Um, Sometimes you get customers who have been through it a few times and, and they're, you know, sometimes easier because they're a little more familiar with what to expect. Um, but when you have a customer building a new project, I think it's important to try and educate as you go. Um, make sure you're answering all their questions and making them feel confident about what you can do. Um, but yeah, once the, you know, then the contract's accepted, down payment, schedule, uh, order anything that's got to be pre-ordered start when you're supposed to start, get the yeah. project done. Um, often startup time or completion dates fluctuate, you know, depending on where the builders are and what their schedule is like. Um, we do do some projects where we're on an existing building and we can go in and bang something out fairly quick because there's nobody, you yeah. know, you're not dealing with painters or masons or anybody else outside. Um, so yeah, I think some of it's job specific, but then we do a, we do a final walkthrough. We try and do a, a punch list when we know we only have a week or two left. Um, I think that's a great thing to add if you're not doing that now is a, a punch list to create a list of things that needs to be done or they don't like or they want to add to or whatever it might be because it just it gives you a point to finish. Right. Sometimes if you don't have a checklist, things can just continually linger, you know. Whereas if you can say, no, that's done, it's off the list. Um, especially when you're ready to do like maintenance turnover, it's nice to have that completed. So there's no confusion about what's included, what's not included. Um, right on. Good. And, and you talk about maintenance turnover, you guys, uh, are part of, or, or you, you run also more of a maintenance and enhancement thing. Not anymore. I sold that business. So we, we used to do all our maintenance in house. Yeah. Uh, and we would get into annuals and, and all the goodies that you do with maintenance. Uh, we also used to do our lighting and irrigation in house. Um, yeah, over the years we separated those into their own businesses because they were, you know, especially the maintenance portion, it was getting too, not that it was too big, but it, it was um, difficult to be everything to uh, customers. And the thing about the maintenance business, as you know, is it's much more communicative, um, you know, customer heavy uh, right. relationships and, uh, you know, expectation setting and budgets and all the, all the good stuff that goes with yeah. maintenance uh, as is irrigation and, and lighting, you know? Um, and for us, one, I had a person that was running that portion of the business that was keen to have her own business. 
and she, and she was great. So we, we got a deal done and, and she bought that part of the business and has, is still running it and doing a great job with it. So you just showed, sold your portion of that to of her the maintenance, she's yeah. probably doing it. Yeah. Um, and that allowed me, you know, I was probably spending two, 300 hours a year focusing on maintenance items yeah, yeah. where, um, you know, the net on the two or 300 hours focused on construction is, Way, is better way greater yeah, yeah so and that's also what i like right i know i i'm i'm more like creating and and working with the designers and the customers to build some cool stuff and um maintenance is a very important part of it it's just not part of the business that i want to want to uh look after and and did you find with the same thing with your key guys or really experienced guys they were spending their very valuable hours on low ticket items, whether it's lighting or irrigation or plantings. Uh, was that a key factor to separate it? It, it definitely helped, um, or it was definitely part of the decision because yeah, you, you would certainly run into things where um, you needed to pull a crew or crews to help do something maintenance related. Um, Taking them away from the machines are parked. Yeah. You know, stones not going in the ground. Um, so that, and that was a, a, one of the better reasons for the separation as well as it just really allowed us to focus on construction, you know, and, and um, still prepare for maintenance and maintenance turnover, but um, focus on construction. So what does that look like now you have all the hard stuff in, you've got their pool, their sauna, their whatever, their, their steps down to the lake. Um, now it comes to softscaping. Is that fully subbed to them? uh at this point or we we still do all our plantings or just out of like we'll still do like complete turnover so irrigation lighting planting mulched uh and then turnover right yeah and we've got a couple of referred uh or preferred people that we refer yeah um for maintenance and and from there the customers can can kind of meet with them and uh, come up with a schedule that suits everybody and and I mean, first year too, a lot of times, if you're doing a turnover in July or August, it's probably not going to be very maintenance heavy the first year, Yeah. you know, until the plants and everything mature a bit and other than cutbacks and leaves are, you know, probably not a ton to do. Yeah. Um, but everybody has a different level too of, of maintenance. You know, some pro- properties, they're not only doing maintenance, but they're doing cushions and blowing furniture off and porches right. and so boats and docks and, you know, so just another reason to focus on construction interesting yeah so explain to me um we're, we're in muskoka the whole pool thing up mm-hmm. here <laughs> a client wanting a pool installed on a lakefront property in muskoka right i'm having trouble wrapping my head around that well and i mean we've had in our first 10 or 12 years in business i think we were involved with two or three pool installs and probably half a dozen, um, shotcrete shell hot tubs. Um, and then in the past four to five years, we've probably installed 20 plus pools and 30 or 40 shelled spas and some big ones, you know, 14 by 10, uh, auto covers the works. Um, but I think, you know, I think some of it's comfortability. Some of it is uh, safety. I think customers like the fact that the pool is always 85. They can see the bottom. Right. They can see the kids. Um, it's, it's, you know, they can now use it from May 2-4 to Thanksgiving. 
right? It's always heated. Um, so yeah, and I think you got to have the right size property as well to be able to fit it in, and it's got to be at the sixty-six foot setback. So you, you need a you need a good size property to be able to do it. A lot of frontage. Um, so yeah, I think it's just customer preference. But it, what I would say is that eighty percent of the bigger places that are being built now have a pool. Really? Eh? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And on that topic of Muskoka, like it's, it's most people's retreat, especially all these cottagers, mm -hmm. uh, not only from uh, the city or Canada, but probably all over the world, right? Yeah, definitely. We have, yeah, we have customers from everywhere. A lot of U.S. Uh, customers, uh, quite a few from Europe, um, all over Europe. Um, and yeah, and you're just, you're seeing more and more. And, and it must be, uh, you guys feel some responsibility, I guess, like Muskoka is natural. It's a beautiful place. That's what it's known for. Um, but coming in and tweaking all these things, making it artificial, where do you draw that line of sure you guys are using all your, your granite natural stone and, and keeping that natural flow to it. Um, where do you draw the line between having all these concrete pavers and, and having it, you know, an asphalt jungle in this uh, this beautiful part of the region. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I mean, it's, and we always say that, like it's hard to know where to go back to nature, like because the properties are so big and it's not, you know, like in the city or an urban area where you've got a fence line closing them in, there's, you know, might be acres in between properties. Um, but I think for years, everybody pushed the boundary and everybody, and, and including us, we, we were, you know, there was more stone installed inside the 66 foot mark, but it, a lot of the municipalities in the past few years have started to adjust their official plans um, and try and work with contractors more and educate customers more. Um, because one of the things that was always tough is you would try and push native plant material in the buffer zone, but without being able to show somebody how good it could look, people hear native plant material and, and feel like it's not going to be pretty or it's not going to be as pretty as a bunch of hydrangeas or right. something lining the stairs. Um, but now that that's being implemented more and more often, people can, you can take people to customer or customers to properties and show them what it actually looks like. And, um, you know, it can be quite impressive as well. Yeah. So I think a lot of, a lot of that, um, control or pushing the boundaries is getting limited by the rules. Right. Um, which is good. And I think the other, the other thing, and I've said this often, and there will be architects that disagree and builders that disagree or, or, or customers, but you know, whether you're at 66 feet or 86 feet, it doesn't often change your view very little. And now you've got all this extra programming space, you know, in another 20 or 30, 40 feet. Um, and depending on your property, like if you're a highly elevated or it makes sense at 66 because of the, the um, contouring of the land. Um, but pushing the buildings back a little bit so that there is more buffer in between, uh, giving more space for your hardscaping work at that 66 foot mark. Um, and then also working with the township on, you know, right now there's a, there's a rule that, uh, depending on how much frontage you have, you have a 200 square foot fire pit inside the 66, like between the lake and yeah, 66 yeah. back. Um, but the town's been really good. Like if there's a bedrock area or an area that doesn't need to be cleared or, is, um, you know, it's not going to be permeable regardless, they'll let you do a bigger fire pit in that spot. Um, so it's more like we get a, involved with a lot of site plan agreements. 
um, where you have to have a site plan agreement before you can get your building permit. So it's been great for us because we get involved before the foundations are even going in. Um, and we can have that negotiation time with the township to try and figure out what's best. Right. And how can we maximize the property for the customer without compromising what the township's trying to do? And, and a lot of it's, you know, give and take. And um, Interesting. Yeah. So, so with all the unforeseen circumstances this terrain has, with all the, the hidden bedrock or this and that, uh, it's quite extensive. And I, I know in the city, we, we just struggle with hitting a rock here. And there. Right. Um, I couldn't imagine what, what you guys see. From the estimating stage, um, sure, there's the cost and cost plus materials, um, or you're just flat out estimating it. Right. Um, how do you go about that? What What's your strategy to uh, keep keep the unforeseen circumstances in mind? Yeah, I mean, you, you you try and do your best knowing what you know to try and bring up those things on a site where it might be expected. Um, the other thing we do is we have a lot of verbiage in our items that we'll talk about if we run into bedrock. Um, you know, if there is an alternative solution and drilling and blasting is the only option that's at a time material uh, right. expense. Often we can, you know, say it's, say it's in a set of stairs and you run into it, we can either cut some of the bedrock or we can reroute the stairs slightly to get around it or over it. Um, or maybe you've got a few more steps before the next landing to clear it. Um, but it does surprise you sometimes. I mean, the you like to think you can tell by the root base and you yeah. know how deep the stumps are and uh you know you go to some sites and go oh there's got to be five feet of soil there and there's five inches <laughs> yeah. so some of it's investigation as well you know and often when the foundation's going in we'll do some test holes around where feature components are going to be and right just make sure we've got the room so so dig, like bringing an excavator on site when you're doing like that quoting or designing phase sometimes yeah yeah it, usually it's not we don't bring one in we'll just talk like we'll try and go when the excavators there doing the foundation interesting and get them to do a few test holes for us yeah right yeah on. to see what's happening so for you guys uh this is very unique again muskoka area and many of the audience uh people listening don't ever have to even think about this but barging and islands mm. um like islands is a huge thing for these high ticket clients um, and it's a 360. You have nowhere hiding any of your equipment. Uh, every single degree around has to look perfect. Um, like what, what does that process look like from barging to uh, transferring materials, all these added steps? Right. How it goes right over my head thinking about it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's fun. And it, honestly, when, once you do it a bit, it, it, it feels pretty normal. And we're fortunate too. Like we've got some great companies up here uh, that their focus is barging and transportation and, you know, whether it's excavation, island excavation, septics, um, demos, uh, they specialize in it and they're, they're set up to do it. Um, so we try and use those guys as much as we can as far as uh, transporting materials. 360 views is always tough depending on the size of the island. Um, but you get creative, you know, you try and try and put all your services in one spot where, you know, you can screen without obstructing views. Um, We've, we've started doing uh, buried propane tanks. Uh, so that, that's a big ticket or like a large item that's buried and hidden. Uh, so you're not trying to, to screen it. Uh, it's more like the, the generators and the AC units and, um, you know, meter bases and that type of stuff that we're trying to, we're trying to hide. So I think a little bit of strategic planning at the beginning 
make, makes it a little easier. Um, as far as the projects go, we, our strategy typically, and everybody has a different one, but we, we generally price the project as, as if it was mainland, like we would if it was on mainland. Um, and then anything to do with barging is time material. I so see. the barging cost is time material. Our loading and unloading the barge is time material. Um, and how do you bill that time or material? Like just obviously monthly, your seats monthly. monthly yeah. 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 We pull it from LMN. Like we'll have a time material item in LMN for barging. Yeah. When the guys are working on that, they'll enter their time. Um, cause one of the things that is tough to price, uh, is, you know, you have three loads of gravel showing up at 8am to get loaded onto the barge. The barge got stuck on loading somewhere. Yeah. Now your trucks are sitting there. Yeah. So, you know, you know, now you're paying an extra hour and a half for a half. Like if they all sit for an extra half hour, you've got another hour and a half to bill out for, for trucking. Um, so th there's some variables like that, that make it a little tougher. And then we have a few boats for shuttling staff. Um, and we try and get the site set up. Like we'll take out a, a site trailer or bin that's got all of our like consumable goods and plate tamper laser and, and just take it out sucker and, and it just stays there right at the island. You know, it's got a little fridge and microwave and yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff. And, um, and then the, you know, the guys are, are set up and all they really have to worry about is getting back and forth, right which again, we, we bill, uh, time material. So talking about LMN and, uh, and, and shout out to, to Mark Bradley for, for yeah. all he's done, like what he's built there is so, so incredible. It, amazing. it blows my mind how in depth it is. I don't know how guys run successful businesses without it, to be honest, how simply it breaks down everything. Um, what are a few things, and I understand you've been on it for, for a long, long time, um, that you overlooked for the first few years or your staff overlooked and, uh, eventually there was a switch that clicked or you found. Uh, whether it's a new feature or a new way to, to utilize it within the organization? Um, so first off, I would say we probably still don't maximize it. Like I'm still, I'm sure there's still other items that we don't use that it can do. Um, but yeah, it, you're right. It, it's a huge tool. And I mean, there's a, there's a lot of products out there that um, can offer parts of it, but uh, we, we've had a lot of good success with LMN and I think the first year we really used it as a, a quoting system and a time tracker. Um, and then, you know, over the years we improved on that. We actually, this year we've completely ditched our budget and rebuilt a whole new one rather than adding to the old one. Is that what you've done up until now? Just no, we, until the old budget? we've, we've probably completely redone it in the nine years we've had it like three or four times. Right. Um, but then you know, often, you know, like certainly in the past few years, all we really were adding were, you know, whatever the, the new markup was, if, if customer right. vendors were up 5%, we would add that, you know, there was fuel surcharges on everything. So we were adding that, uh, some rates went up. Um, so we would make adjustments to it rather than rebuilding the whole thing. Cause it, it, it is a bit of work, but when you have all the accurate information in there, it's so easy to price. Yeah. Like I was, talking at the conference and that was one of the things they said, like if we have good takeoffs and we peer review our takeoffs so that that's where you go wrong generally is if somebody either their production rate was off or they miscalculated materials. Um, but as far as everything that's in LMN and all the verbiage that goes with every item, once you standardize that, like we can do a million dollar quote in an hour. Yeah. 
right? Like it doesn't take long once you have the takeoffs. And and metrics on these different. Yeah, uh, and you parts can look at jobs. all your yeah like projected nets and gross and um, hours like the works right. So then you can start using that on a Gantt chart for your your year build out of scheduling. Most of the stuff that we do, you know, we're getting involved a year, at least six months before the project, but sometimes a year, sometimes more. Um, so it's great to be able to look at it and go, okay, well, that job's, you know, 3,000 hours. It's going to eat up this many people for this long. And this is predicted start date. Um, so with LMN, you know, not only do you have that, but you've got the job planner when the job actually starts. And uh, it, it's a great, great tool. And to be honest, one of the best tools out there uh, is the 4 at 3. Right. Especially the 4 at 4. Oh, we call right, it 4 yeah. at 3. Um, but yeah, like for a free app, it does so much, especially if you have a larger company. If we have eight or nine sites on the go, and I see those 4 at 3s come in and operation, GM, everybody gets them, the designers, the PMs. Uh, you got a good handle on what everybody was doing that day, what they're doing tomorrow, right. what, where the problems are, is there any customer issues anywhere? Um, so that, that, that is one of the best tools out there. So I think. is that the biggest recap from the field to the office, mm -hmm. meaning uh, like an update daily or is there like a morning team meeting or nope. how, how do you keep everyone on the same page? We, we do Monday meetings at the yard. So that's kind of the day that everybody comes in. There's usually a safety talk. Everybody restocks their trucks or their trailers for the site. Um, lots of conversation about, uh, you know, team members. And if, you know, if somebody's going to need some extra help on Wednesday, they'll be able to throw it out at the meeting and somebody will be able to say, well, if you wait till Thursday, I can give you three guys or I can give you two people or, right. yeah. you know, the builder's got delivery trucks coming this day. So we've got the afternoon, we can do something else. Um, so we only do that on Mondays, but then the four at three is all we use the rest of the week. Right. And we have, uh, the guys all send in photos as well. So we get three or four photos that go into Dropbox, uh, gives you some good documentation, but also shows you, uh, you know, how, what they were working on or if they have a problem, like what the problem is, maybe it's an equipment problem. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and that's something I struggle with, the balance of micromanaging, but also letting the loons, the, the reins loose for the guys to, to perform, not stepping on their feet and, and making sure they uh, put their own twist on things, but get that desired result. Right. Um, you know, keeping the, the brand in mind, the brand name. And, and with that, um, incentives and labor, good labor is not easy to find. No. And incentivizing these guys, um, how do you guys go about it? And uh, keeping them, you know, waking up every day, they're having a place, obviously they, they want to go to work, your guys' environment's amazing. Um, but beyond that, what do you guys do in terms of incentives? Is it uh, profit sharing or, or uh, percentages when they hit a certain, certain, um, certain mark? How, how do you guys do that? So we, we do a lot of everything. I think one of the, you know, I think probably two years ago now, we went through a bit of a wage restructuring where we bumped up everybody, all of our existing staff, so that we could start hiring at a higher rate. Start of COVID? Yeah, well, no, it was, it was after that because we were actually doing quite good with the force we had. Um, it was probably in 22 we did that. Um, the other thing we did at the start of COVID was we started doing this training week every spring where we would pay people $25 an hour to come for the week 
we'd set up a bunch of different stations at the yard and in the field, um, a bunch of health and safety. Uh, actually, the first day, like first half of the first day was always health and safety at the office. Um, but that was a good tool for us because we would get seven to 10 people come. We might only be looking for three or four, but the supers were running all the stations. So they knew who they wanted. Yeah. The so they knew who they wanted. They knew who we didn't want. Um, so yeah, I think wages is one thing, but culture is huge. You know, you, you, you'd be surprised like what good culture does. And I think anybody, you know, everybody's been there and I, I was there for a long time too, but I would say for the past five years, um, you know, when we do do new hires, I don't really have to get involved anymore with how are the people performing or are they a good fit or, um, you know, the, the team that we have will either embrace them or, or weed them out. Right. Um, so I think when you know, when you start seeing that happen, you're, you're doing something right for sure. Um, but yeah, we have, we have a pension plan. We pay overtime after 45 hours. Um, we have benefits, we do in-house benefits. So they have a dollar amount for the year that they can work towards. Um, and then we do do profit sharing for our, uh, PMs and supers right as well and that's based on the year so it's more of a team thing not an individual or job specific so is it a like so it's not individual like not a percentage no it's a, for yeah individual? it's a percentage of the net for each each guy for each person yeah so and that will vary right some guys might have half percent some yeah. guys might have three yeah, yeah. Uh, depending on how long they've been there and and what they do right um, but that that's been a good tool for us a lot of people don't do the net um I like it because I feel like that's the number. Yeah. Right. It's, that is the number. Um, but that, that's a good one too. And, and I think the other thing it helps you with is, you know, as you get key people that have a higher percentage and they're getting a good check at the end of the year, um, it's a little easier to control your salaries. You know, you, you don't have a bunch of high salaries and profit sharing. Right. Yeah. You've yeah. got a manageable salary for everyone and then with the opportunity to to make more if we have a good year and and again it's everybody like you know you uh and i think too that helps with the culture because guys are helping each other more and you know uh i don't want to say they're, they're just helping each other more right if they see something going wrong on a site or they hear hear something is going wrong on a site they're more apt to to fix hop on it. it yeah, yeah. Right. or or pass it on or talk to the other super or whatever it might be opposed to shrugging a shoulder at yeah it. exactly yeah rather than you know i think if you get two individual especially with profit sharing no matter what you do you're always going to have a team that's at the bottom right and a team that's at the top so now you're you know you're creating competition and guys are less likely to share things and share people and right so um, i i really find uh, a tough I don't know if balance is the right word, but between the culture, like if you want good culture, sure you can meet at the at the yard in the morning at the shop, shoot the shit for an hour. That's an awesome culture, but you don't right. get to site by noon. Right, not making any money. Right. So where do you draw that line with whether it's company events or you know that that awesome culture, but also like hey, we're here to make money. Right. Well, I think I think the we're here to perform is something that uh, is talked about frequently. Uh, whether it's at a meeting or during our winter uh, training um, or as a whole group when everybody's together. 
Um, but we, we only meet at the yard on Mondays, everybody else, every other day they go direct to site. So there is no kind of wasted time. And we have a pretty good system at the yard too. Like I feel like our Monday mornings are pretty, if we're there more than 20, 25 minutes, that's long. And we get a safety meeting in, everybody gets wow. restocked and moving. Yeah. Um, and again, like that's just part of culture too. But the events are important. We do a lot of barbecues. We always do a fun uh, like staff rodeo in the summer with some of the equipment. Right. So we had some like races and things like that with machines and, um, you know, a bunch of gifts. We always do a relatively big Christmas party, um, which is always fun. Uh, this year we did it at uh, Taboo. And, you know, you have a band and uh, a great dinner. And uh, I think people always enjoy that as well. It's a good time to, for everybody to catch up and... Well, I'm sure it's something they, they look forward to. Yeah, and, you know, all the spouses are there. And, you know, it's... Uh, and the longer you're in business, the more relationships you have with, you know, parts of your team or people in your team and they're, they're better halves. And it's... Uh, yeah. Good. I think anything you can do that... Uh, yeah, birthdays, like we, we do a... Everybody's birthdays in our phones. So, like... You're messaging them first thing at 7 a.m., happy birthday, and the whole team is. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, they're getting a card and a gift card, and there's lots of little things you can do to um, stay connected with your team and, and make them feel appreciated. Yeah, good. Um, so at the LMN workshop, you uh, we're, we're chatting about that job you had, a million dollars within the one month. Right. And that blew my mind. A million dollars is what we're doing annually in 12 right. months. One month, million dollar job. How did that go? And what lessons did you take away from that with having it so uh, accelerated, happening so quick? Well, it's amazing what you can do when you're focused. Um, and when you have all the right people there. Um, and it was probably more like five weeks, more than a, more than a month. But it was it was quite quick. Uh, there was also a $300,000 spa that went in at the same time. Um, so that added to a lot of the value, but we just, we had multiple teams there. We had uh, probably four crews at once with eight or nine pieces of equipment rolling around. Um, and we were literally finishing, like as soon as an area was done, we were irrigating planting and then phasing it out to the next stage and then closing that. And we were just closing it as right. we went all the way. We also had a great contractor on site who was also down for the same schedule because um, they were painting the whole building. Like there was masonry. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they were dialed and then our project manager and their project manager, just a lot of communication. Access was terrible to the property. There was not a lot of room to stage material. They had construction bins there because they were gutting the interior and cabinetry people and all kinds of trades that want to drive to the front door with their pouch, you know, like it, it was a very tight workspace. Um, but I think when you get everybody together with a common goal and the challenge of trying to get it done for a certain event, yeah, um, it's amazing kind of what you can do. The other, the other part of it was it just, it fell into our schedule perfectly. Right. Like if, if we would have been prolonged at some other jobs that we were trying to finish, we might not have been able to hit it as hard as we did. Um, but it just everything kind of aligned and and came together. And what was the deadline? It was a client's party. Was yeah, it, they, were, they were having a big event. Um, 
it was the 70th, I think. Right on. But there yeah. was a ton of people there, and yeah, 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 very, very cool, very cool thing. And I mean, even at that, you know, it, it probably wasn't like a hundred percent because there would have been like more cleaning we would have liked to have done, and right. probably some more pressure washing and stuff like that. But it was ninety-eight percent, and I think not only were we extremely happy things went well for the builder customer was extremely happy like it was just one of those feel-good projects where everybody was done and it was like worth all the craziness and were there any takeaways or things you do differently next time from that or did it go fairly um it, it was it was pretty good i think we 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 always talk like about attacking jobs and that's certainly been more so the case in the past few years um but after that one, I think the whole team got a better sense of what we can do when we're able to double up. The difficulty for us, and not that it's a bad thing, but it's hard to fill your schedule with projects that are always going to fill that timeline. Because inevitably, if we go in to do a six or $800,000 job, there's likely going to be a hundred or more thousand dollars worth of additional work added and even though you're factoring a portion of that in um some sometimes somebody's delayed or you can only have one crew there because there isn't enough room for two crews or access is terrible or you got to work your way out of the site um so anyway i think anytime we have the opportunity to hit jobs like that we we certainly will it's just timing's got to be right 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 which is more just a logistical thing on the management end right is trying to spread things out a little bit more and logistical well, and then also materials right like yeah materials a, are huge a too a few of our jobs last year is it, it was three guys on it for one of our bigger ones for a month right and um a job before that we were we didn't have our ducks in a row our materials weren't there on time we had our aggregates showing up the wrong time from our pavers and stone and that sort of thing so this next job we're like okay like make sure our shit's together let's let's get this figured out and what happened is we were way over prepared. We ran out of space on site. We had right. way too much stuff. Uh, we had no no room for our fill and aggregate. And then materials were getting delivered way way ahead too. And then where do you put your bin, your trucks? It's a mess. So I'm sure a job like this, um, it was just a full time job, making sure guys weren't running each other over, making sure there's materials and oh, you still have to you know move the seven ton excavator around stuff like that, right? Yeah, just so much coordination, right? Because not only for deliveries, and honestly, I don't know how you guys do it in the city. We've done a couple projects down there for customers from here in Forest Hill, and it's like a logistical nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> trying to find room for trailers or parking. But um, on that particular site, yeah, they, there were so many moving parts because, you you know, there was an outdoor kitchen, there was a big masonry component, and then we had the spa as well. Um, so tons of underground, tons of areas you couldn't work because the underground wasn't done. Right. Yeah. Like, so and then you got multiple sub trades from propane guys to electricians, plumbers. Uh, so yeah, wow. just a lot of coordination and wow. communication. Um, but again, like I think when everybody's hearts in it, it you know, and you've all got the same goal, you can make it happen. Right on. Yeah. yeah. Good. So what's uh, what's a persona or standard that uh, you'd live by or, or um, more so a value that has, has contributed to this success um, and something that's always, I guess, in the back of your head or you're saying to your guys. Um, yeah. I, I think, um, I think just 
making your staff kind of number one is probably the biggest thing. And I think for me or for Muskoka landscapers, when we kind of flipped that switch, and again, that was probably like five, six years ago. Um, of focusing more on the focusing team? Focusing more on the team. Um, that was when things really started to change and certainly culture started to change. You know, customers are obviously like, none, none of us are gonna have a business without customers. Um, but if you've got a team that's focused on doing as good a job as you'd like to do for the customer and they're happy doing it and they're getting paid well to do it and they have the things they need to do it well, um, you know, sky's, sky's the limit. Right. So I think just flipping the switch on, you know, sure, sure you want to have happy customers and be profitable, but I think if you have a happy team, you'll have both of the other two as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And next steps, like going into this new year, I know you're always something new. Uh, what's, what's on your mind? What's, what's happening this year? What's, what's going to be different? Well, we've got a couple of different things happening this year where we are starting another business that's going to be more vertical and we won't be launching till March. So I won't probably say too much about yep. it just yet, but I'm excited about that. Um, the waste, waste recovery, that's something we focus a lot on this winter and we've still got uh, probably two or three more meetings that we'll get that all dialed in. Uh, we're building a new shop at our yard right now, which wow. will be a, a great addition. Um, we've just done a deal with Bobcat where we flipped uh, probably 80% of our fleet for all new equipment. Uh, so that was nice to get that done. That was just last week. Yeah, I saw that on, on Instagram. What's, yeah. How, how, does, how does that work? Well, we, we had, uh, I think we've got 16 or with the track, probably 18 or 19 Bobcat units yeah. between excavators and skid steers and a few tractors. Um, and some of them we own and we've owned for quite a while. Some of them were starting to get a little more repair heavy. Um, we had six or seven machines that were purchased within the past year. Um, but we've always done purchases in the past and um, just kind of decided with the way interest and in everything is right now and the benefits of the lease program. We, we flipped out 11 machines, like traded in 11 machines, got 11 new ones on a three-year lease. Right. Uh, and the goal now is that when that three years is up, we'll, we'll also add the other six machines to it and we'll just start doing a three-year flip on all of our and equipment. Just always keep going. Yeah. And, and Bobcat, I mean, Bobcat really came to the table too with like servicing and warranty and, you know, a four-hour downtime and... Wow, yeah. Um, and so was, there was a lot of perks. Was that a big thing? Uh, you're finding uh, time wasted and spent on breakdowns or... Uh, I wouldn't say we had a lot of breakdowns, but we definitely we definitely had days where a machine could be down and, and yeah, you might be down for a day or two or you rent a new machine or dragging one from another site. Um, you know, as machines age, they don't work the same. They're not as efficient. Um, staff's not as happy in, a, in, in an older machine as they are in a new machine. Right. Um, there's a lot of benefits to the new equipment. Like that now they're now 750 hour service, which is more than we'll put on in a year. Yeah. So we can do all our servicing in the winter. Um, uh, and again, Bobcat was, was great with the, you know, the downtime deal and, um, the service. Um, and then just the, the pricing as well was, was attractive and it was a good deal for them too, I think. So yeah. I think everybody, uh, everybody will be happy at the end of it. 
Good, good. So before we wrap this up, Kevin, in terms of waste, and I know you're emphasizing that, talking about that, that's a huge, huge thing. And in, in the, the Mark Bradley mastermind, that was really mm. emphasized as well and an eye-opening to myself because just in, in my business, the amount of time spent of uh, guys running around or forgetting stuff or mm -hmm. um, suppliers as well, supply yards, you get a different texture paver or, or whatever it could be. Right. Um, what what are a few things number one that you guys are going to really cut back on and number two the whole supply um and material thing i know you guys do quite a bit of that in house right um what what was the thought behind that um i think it's more just tightening up and like i said earlier there was some kind of low-hanging fruit in there with with things like um leaving site you know so one of the things we've done is is added the fridges microwaves coffee machine to the site trailers and and we have some containers as well that right. stay on site um, you know, with the hope that that will help alleviate guys having to leave for lunch or coffee or anything. Yeah. Um, but then the, the, the Monday meetings, uh, this year we're going to have somebody that's actually at the shop that's handing out all the consumable goods to every crew. So they're not forgetting anything. Right. Right. Um, there's going to be checkpoints at the yard as well for them to just verify anything that they need to fill in their container. Um, so things like that, like anything you can do to cut down on drive time and be more production related is massive. Um, what else have we got going? I mean, there's a ton of little, there's a lot of little ones at the office. There's a lot of, there's a lot of duplication with some of our systems as well. Um, some that I'm not going to change because I think it's important for some things to be duplicated, uh, like your invoice approvals, uh, or your quotes. Um, you want to make sure that, uh, you know, I still like to see every invoice and every quote that goes out right. before it goes, um, which is likely a waste of time because the, you know, the, the team's pretty dialed, Yeah. but I don't know. It's just something I've always done and I still like, you're always, you're always tweaking, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I still like being involved with that stuff. Uh, what else do we have for waste? One, well, I, I know you guys do a bit of supply stuff. Do you own a supply yard or you well, keep the I, materials I, at your yard? How, uh, in terms of materials? Right. I'm a part owner in a company called the Granite Warehouse, which supplies uh, imported stone. We get stone from China, India, uh, Quebec. Um, and it, that's probably 30 or 40% of our uh, of what install projects. Yeah, we, we use a lot of uh, local product as well. Uh, probably more so than uh, the Granite Warehouse, but Granite Warehouse does a lot of business outside of Muskoka as well. Right. Um, so yeah, for stone, but for our aggregate, I mean, we're bringing everything in as we need it. Uh, we don't stockpile too much at the yard. We carry more like drainage pipe, filter cloth, paint, blades. Right. You know, all the disposable goods that the guys might need, all the safety and PPE. Um, mulch we have at the yard. We have salt at the yard in the wintertime. Uh, but outside of that, everything's getting trucked in as we as we need it. Right on. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, we'll wrap this up, Kevin. I, I do appreciate your time here and really picking your brain, diving diving super deep, and, and it was awesome. Uh, you know what what you guys have achieved is is really really incredible and and something to aspire to. So thanks. Yeah, uh, I thanks appreciate again. it, and it's fun to watch you guys and what you're doing too. It's uh, impressive to see somebody at at your age doing what you're doing and with all the things you've got on the go and. Thank you. I'll look forward to seeing.